0: Just a quick disclaimer, there's some stronger-than-usual violence this week, as well as some adult stuff, and an instance of domestic violence. Please see the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, we wrap up last week's 1001 Nights Story. We'll learn that you should always fight the monster on Magnet Mountain, that you should definitely store the knife drawer above the bed of the person you're prophesied to kill, and that, when it comes to getting married, maybe avoid murderers. The creature this time is Jack in the Bowl. Who's like the buttercat? If the buttercat was exclusively into beer and cake. This is Myths and Legends, episode 313B, Night Shift. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We're continuing last week's story, where things turned violent at an epic house party. The people, to enter, had to agree not to ask about anything that didn't concern them. And when the hostess began beating dogs, and another rolled around on the floor weeping, they asked what was up, and immediately found knives at their throats. If they didn't tell their life stories, they would die. There were three dervishes, a porter, and the caliph and his vizier, Jafar. Last week, two of the dervishes told their stories. But now, it's the porter's turn. How about you, next? The porter swallowed hard and then reconsidered when that little bit of motion on his throat drew blood. Him? The hostess said, yeah, him. How did he get here? The porter said he was a porter. He delivered groceries. She hired him that day in the market. Uh, his dad was a porter and his dad before him. His parents were gone, so he was alone in the world. and He had to work day in and day out lest he starve. There wasn't really such a thing as social mobility in this time, and he couldn't stop for a moment, or... The hostess waved to the enslaved man, who removed his knife from the porter's throat as well. But what? The hostess said that he was free to go. She wasn't going to kill him. His life was just sad. Besides, she did hire him and entice him in, so he was free to go if he wanted. The porter rubbed his neck. Well, now that he was free to go, he kind of wanted to stay. He wanted to hear the other stories and, you know, wanted to see where this night went. Wink. And by the way, the original is extremely explicit in the earlier swimming scenes, so don't play that particular audiobook on a family road trip. The third, one-eyed dervish, sat there. The hostess pointed a knife to him. You. Story time. Go. He was ready. He raised his hands. His story was stranger and more amazing than any one they had heard before. The lady broke in. Uh, okay, that's a big setup. He knew the first included aiding and abetting magic incest, and the second guy was turned into an ape by a genie and saw a wizard battle, right? The third dervish said he did. He stood by it. He, too, was not once a prince, but a king. He looked at the other two, yeah. Not deposed, not turned into an ape on a road trip. Full king. He looked back to the hostess. As a king, he had a lot of stuff. and now he was going to exhaustively list all of his stuff. And he did. He got off to a slow start, as his misfortune mainly consisted of unforced errors. He had a ton of pleasure boats and warships, as he detailed ad nauseum, and he liked to take them out sailing. The islands around his kingdom weren't cool enough, so he took them farther out to sea. Turned out staffing your ship full of your party buds was a good way to end up with neither a ship nor party buds. They were hit by a storm at sea, but that wasn't the worst part. They were approaching Magnetic Mountain, he grinned. You see, a magnet is this wondrous thing that pulls iron and... A lodestone, yeah, we know, the hostess said. The rest of the room nodded. Yeah, the, one of the earliest known references to the lodestone's magnetic properties was by the Greeks in the 6th century BC. The first Chinese literary reference was the 4th century BC. It's been around for about a thousand years. The dervish smiled awkwardly. Okay, well, not gonna lie. He was banking on the existence of magnets to do a lot of the heavy lifting in the story, but it's about to take off, like his ship. Immediately, all the boards started coming apart. The nails were the first to fly. Then the wooden boards and the canvas sails. Everything was being pulled toward the mountain. that's. I'm sorry, that's not how magnets work? the porter said, bringing back a bowl of dates for the room. They don't attract things that are non farious The rest of the room nodded. That's just basic science, even for the 10th century. Okay, thank you, story police. It's a magic magnetic mountain. Not a magnet, the hostess corrected him. It's magic, the dervish said. The hostess said that she understood, but still, stories need internal consistency. It helps to create a believable and immersive world for the audience. I mean, look how long they spent talking about magnets and how boards can't be pulled by magnets. third Dervis said, fine, maybe he was remembering things incorrectly. Maybe it just pulled the ship apart and he drifted to shore. They said, fine, let's please continue. The third Dervis said he ended up on a different part of the island than anyone else, if they even made it. He thought he was a goner. He climbed the summit to the dome there and went to sleep. Then he had a dream he slept on top of a buried brass bow and three leaden arrows. He needed to use the arrows to kill the horseman and his horse and rid the evil from the world. I'm sorry, what horseman? The porter chimed in again. The third dervish said, the evil giant horseman that plagued the island? (laughs) Duh. Well, you didn't say that? You just mentioned the horseman and ran with it. The rest of the room nodded. That, yeah, it was confusing. And this is Jason, by the way. You're just hearing my own frustration with having to reread a page three times to see if the horseman was brought up at all. He wasn't, by the way, so I'm taking it out on the character. Well, if I killed the horseman, the third dervish started back up, a skiff will rise from the sea with a driver made of brass who will take me home, and, as long as I don't invoke the name of God, I can go home easy-peasy. If I do thank God, then I'll be shipwrecked all over again and, get this, you thanked God and ended up exactly where you started, but on an island that wasn't a giant magnet, the hostess interrupted. We can just skip to that. Cut to, yes, the third dervish screaming out, there is no God but God, because he was so happy to see home and then being surprised that he was being pulled back out to sea, despite being warned that that exact thing would happen. He was on an island in the middle of the sea, but then a ship rose above the horizon. The king, the dervish, hid. He didn't know who that was. If the horsemen had friends or what, he would lie low and see what was going on. And it was weird. A bunch of enslaved men filed off the ship with shovels, and dug a deep hole. When their shovels clanged on stone, they returned to the ship and brought bread, flour, wine, sweets, water, and then put everything in the hole. Then, they called out. A procession emerged. A boy, who couldn't have been older than 15, held a withered, wizened man, whose tears peppered the sand as they approached the hole. The entire procession disappeared underground, and after some time passed, they emerged without the boy. Plot twist, I thought they were burying the dad, the king whispered to no one in particular. Almost as soon as they were out of the hole, they began piling dirt on it, and as soon as that was finished, they boarded the ship and left. The king would have liked to have thought he was above grave robbing, but he definitely wasn't. There was a lot of food in that grave, so a few hours later, he hit the tomb or what he thought was the tomb. In fact, you might find this unbelievable, but it was a stone doorway to a secret stair. He waved his hands with no small amount of flourish, and waited. That's not all that impressive, the hostess said. The last two stories had that. Well, not the grocery guy, but you know. Okay, well, that's unfair that I had to go third. Anyway, the kid was down there, alive, You just set up shop so the person prophesied to murder him wouldn't be able to find him and... Get this. It was you? You were the one prophesied to kill him? The porter chimed in. The third dervish said, What? How did they know? Buddy, you, you telegraphed it. Well, messenger pigeoned it. The porter replied. The other dervishes nodded. The third dervish shook his head. Well... Yeah, he was prophesied to kill the kid. It was supposed to be the one who killed the horseman on Magnet Island, but he wouldn't do it. The room looked at each other. They could see where this was going. The king was so resolved to not kill the kid in the next 40 days, according to the prophecy, that he would stay by the kid's side, burning oil lamps in an unventilated cavern, drinking way too much alcohol with him, and then helping him into the bath and carving up melons next to his bedside. The room pinched the bridges of their noses in unison. Finally, it was the end. It was day 40. The king was going home to his kingdom. The kid was going to be all right. Minutes until midnight, until he wouldn't be prophecy-bound to kill this kid. he had just helped the kid out of a warm bath and put him to bed, the safest place for him. He was going to carve up a melon. The king had hid the knives just in case, but he hid them on the shelf above the boy's bed. Why? Why would you do that? The porter yelled. The hostess told him to calm down. She was sure there was a perfectly rational explanation. It honestly seemed like a good idea at the time, but you know what happened, the third dervish said. You accidentally dropped a knife on him, killing him? The hostess groaned. (laughs) What? Please, no. Predictable much? The third dervish laughed. I fell from the ladder, knife in hand, and accidentally stabbed him in the heart. I was right next to his face as he died. It was intense. The funeral was a sad affair. The king, the future dervish, watching from the shadows. The father ended up so sad about his son that he died. So, the enslaved men were no longer that. They jacked the ship and took off, and the king spent another month on the island, living in the underground mansion. A month later, though, the weirdest thing happened. Well, like, the third weirdest thing in the story so far. A land bridge formed on the eastern side of the island, sand stretching off almost over the horizon. But there, at the end, a giant fire glowed. The king, not knowing about wildfires, I guess, said that there was nothing in this world that could make a fire that big without it being kindled. The king was more wrong than right, but what he found at the end of the long trek was, well, weird dudes. It was a palace made of brass that reflected the sunlight and probably got so hot in the Middle Eastern summers. The people of the palace were happy to let him in, but it was pretty much the only thing they were happy about. Why do you guys only have one eye? the king asked, all the men who only had one eye. They snuffed out the fires and started rooting around in the ash. Don't ask us why we only have one eye. You don't want to know, the men said. The king now really wanted to know. They told him that no, he didn't. If he learned, he would be just like them. Now, if you would excuse them, they had some screaming to get to. Every night, the men of the palace and they were only men, by the way, would smear ash on their faces, beat their chests, and wail all night. Now, for me, I would just let it go. If someone was obviously miserable and cursed, and told me that the only way to know what was up was for me to be miserably cursed, and there was nothing I could do to help them, I would just continue to let them be miserably cursed, I think. But I'm not the main character in this story probably bored out of his mind and unable to sleep, curiosity finally got the better of him. Please, he begged, tell him why they were like this. He would take any consequence. The men said, sure, whatever, and went to go kill a sheep. We'll see that when, like, 20 guys scream at you constantly that you don't want to do something, you should probably listen to them, but that will be right after this. So, you're going to get in this lambskin sack, and we'll sew it up for you. A rock will pick you up and take you because you look like a sack of skin. Apparently the rock, the giant bird's favorite meal, When you land, just cut yourself free and the bird will fly away. Walk for half a day in the only direction available and you'll see a red-gold palace studded with emeralds and precious stones. Go in and, well, you'll learn why we only have one eye and cover our faces in ash, mourning our previous life. As they stitched up the king, the future dervish, he asked, who was the one discovered this? This was a lot of really specific steps that needed to be followed. And why did people do it after? The men did not answer. Like most people in the king's life, they were pretty happy to be rid of him. You know who was very happy to see me though? The dervish smiled. 40 ladies, wink, sumptuous ladies, at the palace I found near the landing site. The dervish ran his fingers through his hair and sat back while the others in the room questioned the use of the word sumptuous. We sat and talked until nightfall. And at nightfall, well, let me just say, we had some dinner. Then he described, in detail to the party, what happened after dinner. You can probably just skip ahead, the hostess said. You don't want me to describe each night with a different woman for an entire year in exhaustive detail? The dervish asked. I I do. The porter sheepishly raised his hand. We do not the hostess said. Please, continue. The third dervish rolled his eye. Well, whatever. So, at the end of the year, the women were crying. They were all sad they had to leave their boy toy. That's me. You're like 40, the hostess said. Meant the man continued. They made a deal with him. He could stay in the castle. He would have a key to every room. Every room was available to him, except one room. Oh, "'Oh, okay, I got it. It's a bluebeard thing,' the porter chimed in again. It, "'It's what?' The porter looked to the hostess. It, "'It was a bluebeard thing, right? "'Like, where you can go to any room in the castle except one, "'and you he went to that room.' <laughs> "'Spoilers!' the third dervish shrieked. "'The porter said it wasn't a spoiler. "'It was a very common, very old trope. "'The third dervish said, "'Well, okay.' He had a hundred keys to a hundred rooms, but he couldn't go into the gold door. These women were all princesses who had to go back to their dads for 40 days. I guess they were doing like a sleepover thing where each said they were sleeping over at a different friend's palace for a year. And as long as no one parent completed the circuit of calling all the other parents, they were good. The princesses had left. Hopeful that the king wouldn't open the golden door, but you know. No one had managed it yet. So, you'll never guess what happened, the king winced. We already guessed that you went in the room, the porter said. The third dervish, the king, said, oh, then, yeah, they they did guess what happened. The rooms were nice. A beautiful garden, jewels, running streams, but, oh, that mystery box. You gotta know what's in the mystery box. You know who it was, the dervish said, pointing at the room. It was Satan, not in the box. Satan was tempting him. The room looked at each other. The third dervish was nothing if not his own worst enemy. The devil had nothing to do with it. Case in point, inside the room, a black horse. Now, the king could have left it alone. It wasn't moving no matter how much he kicked it, which I don't know horses, but that's probably what you want to do. He found a whip on the wall and started beating it. And when it came to life and whipped its own tail... The king shrieked, his eye, he was blind in one eye. Okay, you're, you're done, the hostess said. The dervish said he didn't even get to the part where he returned to the one-eyed men, and they said, see, and cast him out for doing the exact thing they told him not to do. He came to Baghdad and met up with the other two one-eyed dervishes. The hostess said that, does that about cover it? The dervish thought about it. Yeah, actually, that does, that's it. You are lucky you followed the grocery guy with his sad life, because your story is terrible. Still, thank you for telling it. You're free to go, the hostess said, and waved off the enslaved man, who removed the knife from the neck of the one-eyed dervish. Her eyes turned to the caliph and the vizier. The commander of the faithful said he very much did not want to die, but he and his dad's story wasn't as good as the others. They were just simple merchant men, they were out at a killer party earlier with great wine and food, but not so great company. People started fighting and the party was raided. When they tried to go back to their hotel, it was locked and God, it seemed, led them here. The hostess looked at the obvious caliph and his vizier. Yep, okay, that one checked out. No one at the party really questioned the hostess's judgment on that one. Just like the hostess and the other two women didn't question why they were picked up by the caliph's men, and dragged to the palace the following morning. You see, when the men left, the three dervishes had nowhere to sleep that night. So the caliph demanded that Jafar take them to his own house to crash, despite having a palace with functionally countless rooms. The next day, they would have the dervishes by to chronicle their stories. But there was still something hanging open. The caliph tossed and turned all night. He had to know. Had to know why one woman beat those dogs, and the other wept on the floor, covered in scars. So the next morning, the caliph turned the tables. He demanded that the hostess tell him why one woman beat the dogs, and the other cried. He said she had no idea, but the previous night she had threatened the life of her caliph. She said, what? No way. He was so well disguised and great at acting. Then the hostess breathed. Now it was her turn to tell a story like her life depended on it. Because, well, it did. She pulled out a whiteboard because this first part required a little bit of diagramming. She, the hostess, had four sisters, Two of those sisters she had with the same mother and father. Two of the sisters she had, the women with her, the porter and the procuratrix, were her sisters with a different mother. When she and her full sister's father died, they all lived together with their mother, with the two other girls living with their mom. Eventually, all the moms died too, and the girls got their inheritances, which they divided up into dowries because, well, this was the Middle Ages. Her two older full sisters got married before her, and those guys were terrible. Like, making your wife go on merch trips all around the world, wasting all of her money, and then abandoning her in a strange land bad. The first sister eventually made it home, but the hostess didn't even recognize her. She was so ragged. The second, somehow, married an even worse guy, though the story doesn't tell what he did. Kind of impressive, though. It's hard to go lower than the first guy. The hostess, the third sister, though, she was doing it. She was making a living by spinning silk and she didn't feel like she needed to marry. She told her sisters, like, don't get married again. They could make it work here, on their own. It's just too risky. They did get married again. Their husbands cleaned out their finances and left them, and they finally accepted the youngest sister's wisdom. Three years later, the hostess's business had grown beyond what she could reasonably sell in Baghdad. She, like other merchants, had to buy space on a ship to sell her goods in a different city. She kissed her sisters goodbye, set sail, and they were immediately lost. The sailors resolved to just unfurl the sails and see where the wind took them. Had to be better than the nowhere they were stranded. They were mostly wrong, and for the next 20 days, the ship went nowhere fast. Until, one morning, the lookout cried that they spotted not just land, but a city. The boat scraped the sand, and the hostess emerged calling out with a greeting to the people at the city gate, the people that seemed so transfixed by her presence that it was like they were carved out of stone. Well, that's because the people were carved out of stone. The hostess walked up and saw people standing there with staves, completely stone. She thought it was a pretty lifelike, if overly artistic statue choice. Most people would choose like gargoyles or a guardian or monsters or something not some rando person mid-word. She learned that it was less a bold, artistic choice and more a citywide curse when, shop to shop and house to house, everyone, from the eldest person to the youngest baby, had been turned to stone. The sailors ran back to the ship. They didn't need any of that. The hostess, though, pressed onward. At the very least, she could gather provisions and money here, not like the inhabitants were using either of those, she made her way to the palace through a tasteful and humble solid gold doorway that led to the king's private quarters. She found the queen, turned to stone. She also spotted a gemstone the size of a melon. Gonna have to come back for that. But as she wound through the labyrinthine corridors, she did find something else. A candle. A burning candle. Someone else was alive here. She noticed through one of the windows that the sun was setting. Curious or no, She didn't know what was in store for her after nightfall in the cursed city. She turned to leave and, well, labyrinthine corridors are labyrinthine. When she couldn't find her way out of the darkness, she returned to the queen's bedroom, locked the door, and tried to get some sleep. Then, in the night, she heard chanting, prayers. She threw open the door and followed the sound until, down a winding hallway somewhere in the heart of the palace, she found a man kneeling on a prayer rug. Quran open in front of him. And he, let me tell you, he was hot, the hostess said to the caliph. The caliph said, Oh, that, that's cool. He got it. They could move on. The hostess said, Oh, no, no, no. If she and her sister had to listen to all that junk about women from the dervishes, then he was going to hear all about this hot praying guy in rhyming couplets. And that's what the story did. It describes his attractiveness in verse. It's really impressive. The story of what happened to the city was as simple as it was incomplete. The young man learned of Islam in secret, told his parents in the city, who were of a different religion, that they should convert. They didn't, and dot, 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 the whole city turned to stone but him. He was so happy to have met her. The hostess took his hand and asked him, would he return with her to Baghdad and get married? The pair embraced. We'll see the way evil snakes do therapy, but that will, once again, be right after this. I'm getting married! The hostess cried and hugged her sisters, who stood there stunned. Uh, what? What happened to them all being happy and cool and single without guys? And oh my gosh, look at him. They could see his abs through his flowing tunic somehow. What in the world? I know, right? The hostess gestured to the ship full of riches. They could take whatever they wanted off the ship. She only wanted him. The couple looked in each other's eyes. The sisters, so happy for the youngest, floated the idea of a celebratory boat ride and nap. They never went anywhere, and that they were rich now. They should just, like, cut loose. So the hostess agreed. Yeah, sure. They unloaded the ship and took off. The nap part was apparently a non-negotiable, which was weird, but the hostess kind of learned why when she woke up drowning. Yeah, they waited until the hostess and her betrothed were asleep and tossed the pair overboard. The hostess swam to shore and cried out for her fiancé. He arrived, floating face down. He didn't make it. There was some food and fresh water on the island, and eventually, the hostess roused herself from her grief enough to not starve. She was forlorn, having lost the love of her life because of the jealousy of her sisters, especially after doing so much to support them and their terrible decisions over the years. Maybe that was why she took pity on the snake a snake was being pursued by another snake. And while I would personally let that whole terrifying situation sort itself out, the hostess felt for the snake. Wanting there to be some justice in a cruel world, she stomped on the tail of the pursuing snake, and then kicked it until it let the victim snake go, and then also kicked it several more times until it died. The victim snake turned, unfurled its wings, and the hostess watched it flap off into the sky. The Hostess shrugged, though she guessed flying snakes are a thing now. She sat down to resume crying. A few hours later, a person, a human woman, walked on the beach. Two snarling dogs in tow. She called out to the hostess, who rose and greeted her. The stranger greeted the hostess like an old friend, and the hostess said, uh, hi, who are you again? The woman said that she was the snake, the one the hostess just rescued and she had made everything right. Right, to her, was flying over and commandeering the ship from the evil sisters, taking it home, unloading all the riches, and turning the two sisters into dogs. The hostess said thank you to the snake woman, but told her that she could turn the sisters back. They were still her sisters, and the hostess still loved them. The snake said, oh, oh, no, no, no. This wasn't, like, a nice forgiveness thing, aw, where she loves her sisters despite their brokenness. This was snake therapy. She was to take a rod and beat these dogs 300 times each night or else she, too, would be turned into a dog. The hostess blinked and found herself in her home, rod in hand, and dogs by her side. Oh, 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 yep, okay, the dogs... Makes sense now, got it, the caliph said, and pointed to the next woman. You, the one who cried at the singing? What's your deal? She said, well, her story was a tale of love and loss. You see, she was a sister of the hostess from another... The caliph cut her off. Yeah, they already did the diagramming bit. She was one of the hostess's half-sisters. Her parents died, left her some money, let's pick up there. I don't have all day, and this woman has to get home to beat some puppies at some point. The weeping woman nodded, of course. Well, her deal was that she was invited to a wedding by an elderly woman. The elderly woman needed help, though. Her daughter was in need of a dress, and the weeping woman raised her hands. Say no more. What's her size? The wedding of the orphan woman, the adopted daughter of the older woman, was a big day. Not just because the weeping woman was the guest of honor, but because, well, it was also the weeping woman's wedding day. She met the orphan woman's brother, and, hey, they were two beautiful strangers. They were already at a wedding. Why not make this nothing of a relationship official? They were married on the spot. And for the next month, things were amazing. They spent the first wonderful night together, and the next morning he slaughtered many sheep in Thanksgiving, which I'm guessing is a cultural thing, though I couldn't find much on it. He just had one simple, easy, easy, deeply controlling rule. She was not to speak to any other man but him. So, when she was out at the market, she took the elderly woman and... Oh, was that silk? It was. There was a silk merchant who had the best stuff. The weeping woman sent the elderly woman to the counter to ask about the price. She returned. Well, it was cheap. Free, actually. All it took was a kiss. The weeping woman said, oh, no, she, she was married. She couldn't. The elderly woman said, relax. It was just a kiss on the cheek, not a conversation. She could just look to the side, close her eyes, and in an instant have bolts and bolts of silk without breaking any of her husband's weird, toxic rules. Though it definitely went against the spirit of what her husband had her swear to, it didn't technically go against the letter of it. The weeping woman shrugged. You know what? Sure. For free silk. She turned and the silk merchant bit her face. She woke up on the floor, having passed out from the pain, with the elderly woman above her, pitying her. She stood and blood bloomed on her blouse. And the elderly woman told her to run home. She would meet the weeping woman there with creams, powders, and plasters that would heal her face. The elderly woman didn't come in time, though and her husband returned home. The weeping woman snuffed out all the lights and lit some candles, and he asked what was wrong. She said it was nothing. She was just out at the market, and a camel driver jostled her. The weeping woman ran into something, and it tore her veil and cut her face just a little bit. Nothing to worry about. The husband rose. Well, there was an easy solution to that. He would speak with the governor and have every camel driver executed. The weeping woman said, No, they didn't need to do that. They went through this one more time with donkey drivers before the husband thought his wife might not be telling him the whole truth. So he told her that it would be okay. Whatever happened, they would get through it because they loved each other and they had a relationship based on trust. They sat down to a conversation. Just kidding. Several enslaved men rushed out, pinned her down and held a sword to her neck. The husband told her that if she didn't fess up, he would feed her head to the fish of the Tigris River. After a lot of traumatic back and forth, the husband raised a sword, but the elderly woman, his mother, came in and threw herself at his feet, begging him to relent, show compassion and forgiveness. And from our perspective and most others, the husband's version of compassion and forgiveness, of Having the enslaved men beat her until she was unconscious was... lacking. She woke up, hours later, in her original home that she had kept by herself before she got married. And when she returned to the house that she shared with her husband, she found it in complete ruin. Like, not just ransacked, but the walls themselves were rubble. It was a profoundly epic tantrum. So, the sister came to live with the hostess, and they would have secret fun parties and live life without men. The caliph sat back, considering all this. Ah, well, it sounded like they had a lot of problems that he could solve. The woman said, no, they, they're they actually pretty good with their lives now. The caliph said, you know what, no, he was going to help out here, unprompted. He motioned to the hostess. Hey, that demon Ifrit, who transformed your sisters, do you know how to contact her? The hostess said... Yeah, actually. She had left that out, but the woman had given her a tuft of hair that she could burn to summon the Afrit. The caliph held out his hand. May I? The woman said the caliph was an absolute monarch, so literally, yes, always. She gave him the tuft, and he tossed the tuft on a brazier, and it sparked. In a moment, the hall filled with darkness. Fire rose from nowhere and everywhere all at once. The demon, the Afrit, had arrived. ''Hey, cut it out!'' the caliph yelled. The room was normal. ''Wait, is that the caliph?'' the ephreet said. The hostess waved, ''Hi!'' and nodded. ''Yep!'' the ephreet bowed. ''Oh, shoot. Hey, sir, how may I help you?'' The caliph pointed to the hostess. ''Turn her sister's back and make it so she doesn't have to beat them without turning into a dog.'' The efreet snapped her fingers. ''Done!'' She was just trying to teach this woman assertiveness and to not let people continue hurting her, even if she did forgive them. Yeah, but by turning them into dogs and threatening to turn the woman into a dog too? The the Efreet said, well, it's the way a demon would teach assertiveness. The rest of the room nodded. Yeah, that that tracked. The Caliph said he also wanted to know who this guy was who beat his wife and left her. The Efreet said, well, uh, he might be closer than you think. Just then, a noise came from behind the caliph. He turned. Oh, it was just his wife. The weeping woman said, Wait, that was his wife? That was her mom, well, her mother-in-law. The caliph blinked. Wait. He yelled for his son to get out here. The man emerged and froze. So, yeah, it was the caliph's son, who had snuck out with his mom, set up that whole wedding with the fake sister under false pretenses, and who had married the weeping woman. And the caliph, to his credit, did have his son brought before some judges who exonerated him for what he had done. Apparently, the wife, swearing a vow, gave him the right to straight-up kill her. And so he was lauded for his restraint. Yeah... The caliph said this night had changed his life. Learning the stories of so many people had deepened his own experience and appreciation for the world, and he never wanted this party to end. He officially remarried his son and his son's wife, married the three dervishes to the three remaining sisters, and they were all one big, maybe happy, family. All except for the porters, who remained porters. Yeah, sadly... No upward mobility for them. It is a little sad that the Porters didn't get the happy ending that the others did. Though, was it a happy ending for the others? The three sisters, the hostess and the dogs, who, yeah, had some stuff to work through, were vocally cool with remaining singles and they were doing all right. They married the dervishes, and the caliph's son? Yikes. A guy who prods his mom into adopting his sister so he can meet you and marry you all in one day is like the stalkerist Hallmark movie premise. And then that guy demands that you don't talk to anyone, beats you near to death, and then you have to remarry that guy? I mean, I know there's a big chronological divide between today and when the story was put down to paper, and then between when the story was put down to paper and when it takes place, but wow. In that regard, maybe both the porters got off easy. Next week, it's the beginning of a year-long series of episodes. Each month, we'll talk about a different Olympian, starting with the last, Hermes. And before you write me letting me know that Hermes wasn't the last, please wait, we will address it in the episode, I promise. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site, and now on Apple Podcasts. For less than the price of squirrel underpants tiny underpants for squirrels, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't also lead to you needing a rabies shot, because you tried to put underwear on squirrels. For more information on the membership, check out mythpodcast.com slash membership. The creature this week is the Naf Hans, from Swiss and German folklore. Naf Hans means pot jack, or jack-in-the-bowl. He's like the English brownie in that he'll help out around the house for a small offering. In the case of the Nafhans, it's a bowl full of sweet cream, a piece of cake, and a beer. All those weekly. Which, when I thought it was just a bowl of sweet cream, I was like, eh, not worth doing chores. For cake, beer, and sweet cream though, yeah, I'll stay up all night doing your chores. Sometimes the Nafhans will leave cheese out for you. Cheese that regrows. Now that sounds gross and weird, and maybe it is, but it's also very handy in times when people are starving. Whenever you'd slice or bite off a piece of cheese, that bit would regrow. Not sure if it's a thing where it just pops back in overnight, or if you have to watch it immediately heal itself like some sort of cheese wolverine, but it does make for some cheap cheese. That is, unless you're improvident enough to eat the whole thing. They'll cut corn for you, load the wagons that we still all have, and bring healing herbs for anyone who has been hurt. But the catch? Keep your mouth shut. They don't want you talking about them, good or bad. Definitely not bad. But it'll both end the same way for you. With them going to the next house and helping them out instead of you. Yeah, they're serious. Yeah, don't complain about the quality of free labor. If you do though, you don't have much to worry about. Only that you won't have free labor from them again. The worst they'll do is steal hay from neighbors for people they really like. There's a lot of overlap between this creature and a few others. So much so, that the Nafhans Hans is often called a kobold, which is a human-like sprite, not a lawful evil small reptilian humanoid with an AC of 12 and 5 hit points. There was some attempt in the early 1800s to rationalize the reason people believed in these things. They came up with the reason that early inhabitants of the Swiss mountains, driven up there by various attacking people groups, took refuge in the cliffs and caverns, and only slowly revealed themselves to peaceful settlers, approaching them and assisting them, becoming something of a legend or wondrous in the process. I mean, there are some issues with this theory, the growing cheese for one. Another, I I don't know. For some reason, I'm cool with a helpful brownie or kobold living in the shadows and helping out. But like, just some guy breaking in, drinking a beer and stealing hay from my neighbors feels a lot less helpful and a lot more creepy that's it for this week myths and legends is by jason and carissa weiser the theme song is by broke for free and the creature of the week music is by steve Combs. there are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time